0: Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with Exodus from Babylonian captivity. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Last week we discussed Halloween versus the Reformation. This week we're going to take an in-depth look at the Reformation and its fruits. Dr. Hammond, we know about the Exodus in the Bible, but another significant Exodus took place beginning in the 1500s. Can you tell us who was escaping and from what?
1: Yes, it's interesting. The Protestant exodus from the Catholic Church and its struggles in the wilderness, which followed in the 16th, 17th centuries, kind of paralleling what happened in the 15th century BC, because that's when the exodus from Egypt of the people of Israel took place. So here we are 3,000 years later, and this is an exodus from Egypt. This is an exodus from what Martin Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church, the Roman church being more like Babylon than than, the the biblical Jerusalem, so to speak. So the Protestant exodus that started with Martin Luther's brave stand against the papacy, followed by Ulrich Zwingli and William Tyndale and the second generation reformers like John Calvin, uh, that parallels in large extent the exodus. But I think in this case you can say, It's exodus from the Babylonian captivity of the Roman Catholic papacy. What
0: sort of church experience were Christians having prior to the Reformation? Were their spiritual needs being met? Was the flock being led by good shepherds? Short answers, no. Um, It was a bad
1: experience. And no, they were not having their spiritual needs met. And they were not being led as good shepherds. The church before the Reformation was basically a church without the Bible. And a church without the Bible is about as useless as a... Lighthouse without lights and a candlestick without a candle or a motor vehicle without an engine, because the Bible is the foundation. The priests and the people, or they called them the laity, knew scarcely anything about God's word or on the way of salvation in Christ. And Bishop J.C. Ryle described the situation in these words, "...the immense majority of the clergy did little more than say masses and offer up pretended sacrifices." repeat Latin prayers and chant Latin hymns, which, of course, most of the people could not understand. Latin was the language of the intelligentsia, the academics. It was not known by the average uh, worker. And the average uh, priest um, heard confessions. He granted absolutions, apparently, as though man can give absolution or forgiveness of sins. He gave extreme unction, which was basically last rites to the dying, and he took money to get dead people out of purgatory. I mean, literally, you know, pay me money and um, I'll guarantee that your dead relative and so on will go straight from purgatory uh, to paradise. So Bishop Latimer observed, when the devil gets influence in the church, up go the candles and down goes the preaching. And in fact, Hugh Latimer uh, did a research and discovered that Quarterly sermons, that's once every three months, was prescribed for the clergy but not insisted upon. You could be in a church and not even, and attend every Sunday service, not hear four sermons in a year um, in many Catholic churches. So Latimer noticed that while the Mass was never left unsaid for a single Sunday, sermons might be omitted for 20 Sundays in succession. Indeed, if you preached a lot, that incurred suspicion of being a heretic. <laughs> so if you expound in the Bible, you must be a heretic. And that was the attitude in the church before the Reformation. Bishop Hooper, who along with Bishop Latimer was later burned alive at the stake under Bloody Mary, he did a survey in 1551 and, and Bishop Hooper, Hooper found that out of 311 clergy that they'd surveyed in his diocese, 168 were unable to repeat the Ten Commandments. 31 of those 168 couldn't even say in which part of scripture the Ten Commandments were to be found. Forty could not tell what Uh, where the Lord's Prayer was written, where you could find it. And 31 of the 40 did not even know who the author of the Lord's Prayer was, which you would think with a title like Lord's Prayer should be fairly obvious. So the situation was pretty dire.
0: Um, Dr. Hammond, can you quickly distinguish between a Mass and a Sermon?
1: Yes, well, a Mass is meant to be a sacrifice. So people in the Middle Ages churches, in Roman Catholic churches, uh, they came to church not to hear a message, not to hear the scripture read or anything like that, uh, not to worship. They didn't. They they came to stand for the whole service. There were no pews at the time, and they um, participated in the mass, but only part of the mass because they weren't allowed to get the um, the fruit of the vine. They didn't have the the grape juice or or the um, wine. They were only there to get the wafer because the the fruit of the vine was reserved for the clergy. So. The Mass was a celebration of, um, well, it's, it's not a Eucharist where we call it a commemoration Lord's Supper, a celebratory service, uh, thanking Lord for his sacrifice. But the Mass is meant to be a sacrifice. So the priest, in a Roman Catholic understanding, is performing a sacrifice. And so he's re-sacrificing Christ on the cross in the Mass. And you're getting not a token to remember his body and blood by, but you're receiving the actual body and blood of Christ. So the Mass is a ritual, it's a sacrifice, and it's meant to be providing the actual body and blood of Christ to the person, Um, as opposed to a sermon, which is, correctly speaking, should be Bible teaching, biblical exposition, preaching, uh, aiming at the heart and the head for a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of conduct. So... Uh, attending a ritualistic sacrifice as opposed to coming to hear a message that will hopefully change your heart, attitude, and mind. That's the difference between a Mass and a sermon.
0: Today we find the idea of relics rather quaint, a mental relic of the past, so to speak. Why don't we believe in relics today, Dr. Hammond?
1: Well, we certainly shouldn't believe in relics, uh, and the kind of relics we have today would be different. But the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, before the Reformation, taught its members to seek spiritual benefits, from so-called relics of dead saints and to treat them with divine honor. And when you think, well, what could compose a relic? (laughs) Um, Calvin had an inventory of relics and uh, uh, Hobart Simo, in his pilgrimage to Rome, catalogued some of the ludicrous swindles which were perpetrated by the Church of Rome. These included pieces of wood of the true cross, enough pieces of the true cross to build a large ship. In fact, some said you could build an ark with the amount of true crosses around Europe. Uh, Thorns professing to be part of the Lord's crown of thorns, enough to make a massive bonfire, by the way, Um, but these were all meant to be uh, from the actual crown of thorns. At least forty nails said to have been used at the crucifixion, whereas, of course, only three would have been used. Four spearheads purporting each one to be the one that pierced the Lord's side. At least three seamless coats of Christ, for which the soldiers had cast lots considering you only had that one coat, it makes you wonder. Uh, St. James's hand, bones of Mary Magdalene, toenails from St. Edmund, some bread purportedly to have been used by Christ at the Last Supper. It must have had a lot of um, (coughs) green and mould in it. And uh, a girdle of the Virgin Mary, milk from the Virgin Mary, for goodness sakes. And the royal commissioners of Henry VIII examined a vial at the Abbey of Gloucestershire, which was said to be the blood of Christ, but the commissioners found it contained the blood of a duck. Now these are just some of the literally thousands of profane and vile inventions, fabrications, deceptions, which Roman priests and friars imposed on the people before the Reformation. They must have known they were deceiving the people. Yet they persisted in presenting these lies and frauds and requiring that ignorant laity believe them. Uh, I think something like today where you expected to believe the uh, frauds uh, offered by uh, St. Fauci and his branch Covidians and the Covid cult, salvation by vaccination and the whole lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness. And you meant to believe in these very unscientific things. And if you question it, you know, I mean, you could lose your job as a doctor and things like that. So sometimes the priests induced dying sinners to give vast tracts of lands to abbeys and monasteries in order to atone for their bad lives. So in one way or another, uh, it seems that the priests, the friars and, and the monks were continually separating sinners from the money and accumulating massive amounts of property and wealth in the hands of the Roman church, so in some countries, as much as a third of the land might be owned by the clergy. Now, you know, we shouldn't be too harsh in judging these people of those times, perhaps, because a starving man in the famine may be reduced to eating rats and rubbish rather than of hunger, and I mean, we can understand it can happen, but also conscience-stricken soul who's deprived of the word of God in their own language. We shouldn't judge them too harshly if they struggle to find some comfort in the most debasing superstition. Uh, you know, we don't think that you're saved by crossing yourself and having crucifixes and kissing statues and things like that. But we must never forget it was from these kind of superstitions which the Reformation delivered us.
0: Yeah, I agree that we shouldn't um, laugh at the people who believed in relics because um, we're living in a world of modern-day financial swindles which seem to parallel relics. Um, these modern-day Ponzi schemes um, are, are uh, run by financial swindlers who are only concerned with accumulating wealth for themselves rather than for their clients' financial well-being. So, um, Likewise evidently the priests weren't interested in their flock's well-being, clearly their motivation was rather base.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, you should think today that how many people today actually think that big pharma is concerned about your health and big government is concerned about your welfare and who somehow think that big tech uh, is therefore uh, informing you and uh, uh, the mass media is, is telling you the truth and that they uh, somehow believe that uh, this uh, mask, this cloth mask will actually protect you from a virus. Uh, And they actually believed that even though all the evidence proved elsewhere, uh, and anyone who dared to come up with other information uh, was shut down. But you just think of the huge amounts of uh, gullibility and foolishness today. Uh, Even take money, because a lot of what we have is not money. Uh, Money in the Bible is always spoken of in terms of weight. Um, And it's because money historically has been weighed as silver and gold, you know, valuable uh, products. And... um, uh, somewhere along the line, we were persuaded to put up with promissory notes, and uh, that's the origin of paper money. Now, pa- paper is not money; uh, gold and silver is money. Um, the paper was just for ease of transactions. So that it used to state on it, "I promise to pay the bearer on demand one rand in gold." That's what it said, and you could go to the Reserve Bank and theoretically get your your gold um, a portion that 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 represented. Today, they don't promise anything, and there's the signature from the man in the Reserve Bank, but it's worth nothing. And if you if you actually turned up at the Reserve Bank and said, I'd like my 200 Rand or whatever, they'd say, You've got it. I mean, no, there's a promissory note, it's just a piece of paper. Well, they've lost the idea of what money is, and it used to be something of value, and right now these pieces of paper are worthless. And I can prove that in so many ways. Uh, just take, for example, the fact that my first uh, overseas flights flying uh, to uh, Germany, England, America, and back cost me a thousand rand, actually less than a thousand rand back in the 1980s. Um, Consider my first motorbike in 1981 cost me 1,000 rand, a motorbike. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to get a bicycle. You could, couldn't even get a good pair of running shoes for a 1,000 rand. So uh, how you've gone from – I remember my father buying a car for 1,000 rand back in 1970s. I bought a motorbike for a 1,000 rand in 1980s. In uh, the 1990s, 1,000 rand could buy you a decent bicycle. And uh, now it wouldn't even get you a decent pair of running shoes. So you, you could see the debasing the, the of currency. And it's absolutely shocking to think how you've gotten something that used to be of such value – and it's being debased. And it was well put by the economist uh, Stephen Ritford Goodson that um, prices don't go up. We talk about price going up, but actually prices don't go up. Uh, money gets debased. So his example was in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, to get a toga with a belt and sandals would cost you about a one gold coin. He said, today to get a suit, belt, and uh, leather shoes would cost you a gold coin. He said, the price hasn't changed, but the, the money has been debased, and I think that's what so often does happen. So uh, it's it's vital for us not to be gullible, uh, to recognize real value uh, in real things. So, yes, what we've got right now is the power of the priests was actually practically despotic back in, in the Middle Ages because people depended on them for everything. They were the literate, they were the educated, and they apparently had the keys to the kingdom, and the Pope could decide who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. And so the priests and the friars were used for every purpose except the advancement of the Christian faith. And it seemed that their primary object was power. To them, confession had to be made, and without the absolution and extreme unction, last rites, no professing Christian could be saved or enter heaven. Without their masses, no soul could be redeemed from purgatory. In short, to all intents and purposes, The priests were the mediators between Christ and man. And to please and honor the Roman Catholic Church was a devout Christian's first duty, and to injure them was the greatest of sins. And when the indulgences issued in 1498 with the authority of the Pope claimed to absolve people from usury, that's charging interest, which is what all of our banks do these days, which is condemned in the Bible, uh, to absolve people from usury, theft, manslaughter, fornication, and all crime whatsoever except smiting or hitting the clergy and conspiring against the Pope. That's interesting that that's the worst crime. That's like today. The worst crime you can commit in most countries is uh, tax evasion. Although in South Africa that would be the worst crime you could commit is illicit diamond buying, which is uh, any uncut diamond by uh, virtue of its existence belongs to De Beers, which is bizarre. You might have dug it out of the ground in your own farm. You might have... Uh, scuba-dived off the mouth of the Orange River and found it in the o- ocean bed, it still belongs to De Beers. By, and that's not just in South Africa. That's true for Botswana and Namibia as well. That uh, uh, the worst crime you can commit in this country, even worse than tax evasion, if you can imagine, obviously much, much, much worse than murder, um, is uh, illicit diamond buying, which means any uncut diamond belongs to De Beers. It let's you kind of get down to who's the power behind the throne. To know who rules over you, Uh, see who you can't criticize, and well, uh, in the Middle Ages it plainly was you couldn't stand against the Pope, you'd be accused of blasphemy and be burned at the stake and things like that. So, yes, they they were actually power mad. Uh,
0: Dr. Hammond, you're not painting a very flattering portrait of pre-Reformation priests.
1: Good. Um, I didn't want to. Uh, (laughs) they, They didn't need any flattery at all. Because before the Reformation, the lives of the clergy were simply scandalous. There were brothels in the Vatican. The popes and cardinals and bishops openly consorted with prostitutes, engaged in the most debauched orgies that nobody would want to discuss. The local priests actually became notorious for gluttony. I mean, just think of in the Robin Hood tales, uh, friar tuck is always depicted as as extremely round. Um, Drunkenness, of course, and gambling. And, of course, that's a stereotype of the Middle Ages friars and monks is that they were gluttons, drunkards, and gamblers. As Bishop Rao pointed out, to expect the huge roots of ignorance and superstition which fill the land to bear any fruit except corrupt fruit would be unreasonable and absurd. And it's true. You know, you've got bad roots, you'll have bad fruit. Bad biblical doctrine leads to, uh, you know, very bad behavior. Uh, so belief affects behavior, creed affects conduct. Contemporary art depicts friars as foxes preaching with the neck of a stolen goose peeping out of the hood behind as wolves giving absolution with the sheep partially concealed under their cloaks, or as apes sitting on a sick man's bed with a crucifix in one hand, and the other hand in a suffering person's pocket, stealing his purse. Such public contempt in art reflects the scorn with which the clergy was held at that time. Uh, it's really scandalous. Uh, Bishop Ryle points out, but the blackest spot on the character of the pre-Reformation clergy in England is one which it is painful to speak. The horrible contempt of the seventh commandment, the consequence of shutting up herds of men and women in their prime of life in monasteries and nunneries, convents, was such that I will not defile my paper by dwelling on them. If ever there was a plausible theory weighed in the balance and found utterly wanting, it is the favorite theory that celibacy and monasticism promote holiness. The monasteries and nunneries were frequently sinks of iniquity. I mean, bluntly speaking, um, the idea that you had celibate priests and nuns was promoting holiness was proven to be false. They have found massive graveyards of little newborn babies um, outside some of these uh, nunneries and convents in Spain and in uh, Ireland, where apparently a whole lot of um, babies born illegitimately um, were were disposed of. So you know, forget this pro-life image. Uh, a lot of um, over the years a lot of over the years, um, not only um, immorality, but abortions were taking place um, in many of these uh, so-called convents and so on. So in Ezekiel 16, um, uh, verse 49, it's observed, There's no surer recipe for promoting immorality than fullness of bread and abundance of idleness. A report by the royal commissioners under Henry VIII declared, That manifest sin, vicious, carnal, and abominable living is daily used and committed in abbeys, priories, and other religious houses of monks, nuns, canons, that albeit many continual visitations have been had by the space of 200 years or more for an honest and charitable reformation of such unthrifty, carnal, abominable living, yet that nonetheless little or none amendment was hitherto had, but that their vicious living shamefully increased and augmented. So one doesn't want to say more about that, but it's from these superstitions, corruptions, immorality, ignorance, and idolatry that the Reformation freed the church. So have no doubt that the Reformation changed the church. This is one of the most dramatic changes, uh, the hideous immorality uh, and the scandal in which the priesthood was held before the Reformation.
0: You've presented um, many reasons commending the Reformation and indicting the pre-Reformation church, but there was something even more important the Reformation accomplished, was there not, Dr. Hammond?
1: Oh, yes, far, far, far more important, Um, and that is the Bible. Do you know in 1519, six men and a woman were burned alive at Coventry for teaching their children the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed in English? Now, any good parent would want to teach their children early on The basis for behavior, Ten Commands. How to pray, the Lord's Prayer. What to believe, the Apostles' Creed. I mean, these are absolutely foundational. And for teaching their children these foundations of the faith in English, seven people were burned alive at Coventry in 1519. Nothing seems to have alarmed and enraged the Roman priesthood as much as the spread of Bibles in the local language, in this case English. It was for the crime of translating the Bible into English that the great reformer William Tyndale was burned at the stake. I mean, imagine, burned at the stake, why? He translated the Bible into English. Of all aspects which combined to make up the Reformation, no other aspect received such bitter opposition as the translation and the circulation of the Scriptures, because the translation of the Bible as the Word of God struck a blow at the root of the whole Roman Catholic papist idolatrous system. The Bible, as the only rule of faith and conduct sola scriptura, freely available in the local languages, was a threat to all their superstitions and all the abuses of the medieval Roman papery because when the people could read for themselves, they would say, wait a minute, I don't see anything in here about indulgences or purgatory or convents or nunneries or friars or monks or cardinals, popes. I mean, where do you get any of this in in, uh, the Bible? And of course you don't. So with the Bible in every parish church, every thoughtful man and woman soon saw that the religion of the priests... At no foundation in scripture,
0: were the reformers notable primarily for tackling the moral, political, and financial corruption of the political uh, of the Roman Catholic Church?
1: Well, those were were fruits of it, um, but no their the first attack was theological. They were doing the heavy lifting and hacking through the jungles of superstitious rubble because the way of salvation, the way to the throne of God's grace, had become blocked up and made impossible by jungles of superstitions and false doctrines and all kinds of rubble. And so as J.C. Rowell said, he who desired to obtain forgiveness had to seek it through a jungle of priests and saints and Mary worship and masses, penances, confessions and absolution and the such like, so that there might as well be no throne of grace at all. In fact, most people didn't get close enough to see the throne of grace. Forget about reaching it um, because as far as they could say, they had to go to uh, the priests and the saints and uh, The reformers hacked their way through this huge jungle of papal obstruction and cleared the way for every heavy-laden burden like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, going with this heavy load as they want to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the foot of the cross for the remission of their sins.
0: You've already mentioned the distinction between Masses and uh, sermons, but how else was the churchgoer's experience affected by the Reformation?
1: Yes, well, I mean, the first thing is that before the Reformation, the laity or the Church, the non-clergy were only present at the churches as passive ignorant spectators they could bring their body but not really their mind or soul because the elaborate theatrical presentations of the sacraments were actually a solemn fast because the ceremonies and prayers were said in latin so their bodies might be at the service but their minds the understanding the reason their spirit couldn't take any part at all because the average person didn't know latin So, for this reason, the 24th article of the Church of England declared, this is in the 39 articles, foundation of the Reformed Church of England, it is a thing totally repugnant to the Word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understood by the people. it's, It's absolutely pointless. You know, I mean, imagine going to a church service and hearing the service in Chinese or Korean or Arabic or something and... You know, here you don't know those languages. What's the point? Week after week, month after month, year after year, you're meant to go and hear something in a language you don't understand. How many people would do this? But when that's the only thing available, um, and they were told if you don't come here and uh, endure all this and then come to the front and take that wafer in your mouth, you've got no chance of salvation. So uh, it was actually quite shocking. So if you like the idea of hearing the Bible read in your language and hearing a sermon given in your language – then you can thank the Reformation for that.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that the pre-Reformation clergy were so-called sacrificing priests. What does this mean, and how is it relevant to the Reformation?
1: Right, so before the Reformation, the concept of a Christian minister was sacerdotal That is, it was understood that a clergyman or minister was actually a sacrificing priest. Whereas we think of, of the um, uh, minister being primarily a teacher and a shepherd, but they saw them as a priest because they were sacrificing Christ anew. And so the clergy were understood to hold the keys of heaven, the keys of the kingdom. And so they were actually mediators between God and man, which is what the idea of a priest is. A priest is a holy bridge builder. The priest stands between God and man. He speaks to God on behalf of man. He speaks to man on behalf of God. And he's the, he's the bridge. Uh, whereas the reformers said, no, 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 <laughs> you all have access to God. Um, Solus Christus, Christ alone is head of the church. So the reformers brought the office of the clergy down to its scripture level. We're not priests except in the sense that all believers are priests and that we've got access to God directly through the merits of Christ. So the reformers stripped the idea of a minister entirely of any sacrificial character. We're not performing sacrifice. Christ died once for all and never to be repeated sacrifice. So they cast out the word sacrifice an altar. There's no longer an altar. You might have the Lord's table in the front of the church. Not an altar, a table that would have an open Bible normally. They taught that clergy were pastors, which means shepherds, ambassadors, Yes, messengers, witnesses, yes, evangelists, teachers, ministers or servants of the word and the sacraments. The reformers taught that the chief business of every Christian pastor or minister is to preach and teach the word of God and to be diligent in prayer and in the reading of scripture. We can't save anyone. It's the word of God that saves. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And there's power in prayer because God's prayer answering God, there's power in the scriptures. Uh, there's not power in me. I can't save anyone. I can't forgive anyone's sins. Uh, And so the reformers taught the immense superiority of the pulpit to the confessional. For this reason, where the altar used to be in the middle of the church, the Lord's table was now placed with an open Bible or a pulpit, showing the centrality of God's word in the worship of a Protestant church. We come to church primarily to give true worship, which is worshipping in spirit and in truth, and to bring our minds to be renewed and our spirits to be revived. And, uh, of course, we want to be living sacrifices, but we don't come just to observe a sacrifice performed by a priest where we get some kind of sacrificial benefit uh, just by going forward and opening our mouths and then sort of wafer it. Uh, unfortunately, that was the Middle Ages idea. Uh, but we go to church primarily to be taught, discipled, uh, to worship, and by worship, we mean that we sing the hymns, uh, we sing the scriptures, we sing the Psalms. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight.
0: You've already mentioned monasteries um, and quoted Bishop Ryle um, indicting them. Was there nothing good about the monastic life? Wasn't Martin Luther, for example, a monk?
1: Well, yes, uh, that's true. Martin Luther was a monk. In fact, there were quite a few of important reformers who started out as monks. And um, the monks, of course, initially were good um, in that the original idea of a monk was really as a missionary and uh, Europe was in many ways evangelized, Christianized, discipled, uh, catechized by the monks and the monasteries. In many cases, originally were mission stations. And so you mustn't condemn all monks of all time, you know, like Boniface and others who are just outstanding uh, missionaries too. Uh, so originally, the monasteries were places to study God's word. They were a place of libraries, a uh, place where they made copies of the scriptures where there were students of, of the original languages, although in many cases they were just students of Latin, but in some cases there might have been students of Hebrew and Greek as well. That was rare um, before the Reformation, though. But the monasteries were meant to be places of God's work, and the monks were meant to work hard. They were meant to uh, be examples of Christian work ethic, and many times they, they not only worked in the libraries but also worked in the fields so that they could feed the poor with food that they had grown in their own monasteries or in, in gardens and farms next to the monasteries. So um, it wasn't necessarily bad to be a monk before, but unfortunately it had gotten so corrupted because of the huge amount of people who, out of guilty consciences perhaps, had donated to the monasteries their manners and uh, lands and and treasures. So uh, unfortunately the um, monastic orders had become fabulously wealthy with phenomenal power, and there'd been a lot of corruption, sadly. And while you did have some fine monks like Bernard of Claveau, or Francis of Assisi, uh, who were just uh, a phenomenal evangelists and so on. But you, uh, those were exceptions. And so by the time of uh, Martin Luther, I'm afraid, the monasteries were far from the word of God. But having said that, because of Martin Luther's grappling with his own sin in himself and having no s- sense of salvation and condemning himself, his prior, his um, authority over him in the monastery, actually um, tasked him to study the scriptures and he went for extra studies and he became a professor, a doctor of the Bible, of Holy Scripture. And he was, of course, lecturing in Latin. I mean, they didn't have the Bible in in German uh, or English. They were to lecture in Latin. But Martin Luther was tasked by his Augustinian order to study the scriptures and that's where Martin Luther found Christ. So, yes, um, you mustn't think all monasteries were necessarily bad. They didn't start bad but they had generally become quite corrupted and quite removed from biblical life by the time of the Reformation. However, Martin Luther had access to a Latin Bible, and that brought him to Christ because he was fluent in Latin.
0: Given the power and wealth of the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers must have been very devout and brave men to take on such a high-stakes battle.
1: Yes, they they, they must have. Um, in fact, I, I should also say, before the Reformation, it was believed that The monastic life and the vows of celibacy were the only ways to escape sin and attain sanctification, and multitudes of men and women poured into the monasteries and convents under the vain idea that it would please God if they um, wouldn't have families, although God's first command was to be fruitful and multiply, to marry, to have children, Uh, and they thought they'd ensure the eternal salvation by not um, getting married but by being in monasteries. But the reformers struck at the root of this fallacy by establishing the great scriptural principle that true religion is not found in retiring into convents and monasteries and fleeing the difficulties of daily life, but manfully facing up to our duties and difficulties, doing our duty diligently in every position that God's called us to, including being a father or mother. Not by running away from the world, we fulfill God's call by courageously resisting the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and overcoming them in daily life. So, True holiness should be exhibited in our daily activities as a Christian work ethic. A dairymaid can milk cows the glory of God, Martin Luther said. So for this reason, the Reformers dissolved the monasteries and the convents in the areas and freed the inmates to be reintegrated into normal life. The Reformers also ordered that the Ten Commandments be set up in every parish, church, and taught to every child that our duty towards God and our duty to our neighbor be set forth in the catechisms. And they insisted you cannot become saints by shirking your duty in society. So given the wealth and power of the Roman Catholic Church, the reformers um, were taking on very powerful odds. So we need to continually remember that the Reformation was won for us by the blood of tens of thousands of martyrs. I mean, people laid down their lives. Uh, the reformers were burned at the stake. Bible translators burned at the stake. People were uh, dealt with in the most hideous ways, Waldensians and, and many others. It's not only by their preaching and praying, and by the writing and legislation, but by their sacrifices, that are religious freedoms and liberty and freedom of conscience and Christian heritage was one. So, yes, we need to remember this was a David versus Goliath event.
0: Was the titanic struggle between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers worth it in the end?
1: Well, we must say yes, a yes, and yes, a amen, over and over. We must continually thank God for the Reformation because it lit the flames of knowledge and freedom, which we must, short, are never allowed to be extinguished or to grow dim because the Reformation brought us the Bible. The Reformation found churches steeped in ignorance, left them in possession of knowledge. It found them without Bibles and left them with the word of God in their own language in every parish. It found them in darkness left them in light. It found them bound in fear and superstition and left them enjoying liberty and peace, which only Christ can give. The, the Reformers found the people in the Middle Ages strangers to the blood of Christ's atonement, strangers to faith and grace and holiness, and left them with the key to all these blessings in their hands. It found them blind, spiritually blind, left them with spiritual eyes to see. It found them slaves to superstition, set them free to serve Christ. And as Bishop Ryle so well wrote, are we to return to a church which boasts that she is infallible? and never changes, to a church which has never repented of their pre Reformation superstitions and abominations, to a church which has never confessed and abjured her countless corruptions. Are we to go back to gross ignorance of true religion? Shame on us, I say, if we entertain the idea for a moment. Let the Israelite return to Egypt, if he will. Let the prodigal go back to his husks amongst the swine. Let the dog return to his vomit. But let no Englishman with brains in his head ever listen to the idea of exchanging Protestantism for Popery, or returning to the bondage of the Church of Rome. No, indeed, God forbid, the man who counsels such base apostasy and suicidal folly must be judicially blind. The iron collar has been broken. Let us not put it on again. The prison has been thrown open. Let us not resume the yoke and return to our chains. Let us not go back to ignorance, superstition, priesthood, and immorality. That's all a quote from Bishop Ryle. Uh, if you have a Bible in your own language and a joy to read it and study God's word in your own language, remember you owe that Bible to the Reformation. Brave men, women died that you could have the freedom to read and delight in God's word. If you know the joy of your sins being forgiven and redemption, a new life in Christ, if you are walking by faith and enjoying peace with God, never forget, you owe this priceless privilege the Reformation. If you enjoy church services, scripture choruses, hymns and prayers and sermons in your own language, remember that for this, you're also indebted to the Reformation. If you like sitting down in a pew as opposed to standing through the whole service, you can thank the Reformation because it was for the very reason to emphasize the importance of teaching and reading and taking notes in church that the Reformers introduced pews. Before that, churches had people standing throughout the whole service. And if you see some pre- a Reformation church with people sitting in pews. That is serious uh, um, anachronism uh, because, no, they didn't have pews before the Reformation. And if you appreciate biblical and practical sermons from your past and his counsel, never forget that for this, you are also indebted to the Reformation. The Reformation is the source of many blessings. So we need to ask if we are on the side of the Reformers or of those who burned them and burned the Bible. I think that's my Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints.
0: Dr. Hammond, what resources does Frontline Fellowship offer to educate people about the Reformation, the Reformers, and their achievements?
1: Well, by God's grace, our mission has been producing books and e-books and audiovisual materials to empower churches dedicated to working for Reformation, praying for revival for years. And um, I must say, one of the things that really inspired this was 1994 frontline mission team going into Angola into Coando Kabunga province what the Portuguese called the ends of the earth and coming across a very remote village <laughs> dusty road and all that coming in and hearing the sounds of a hymn that they immediately recognise the tune of although None of our people would have known the words because it was being sung in Northern Bundu, but they were singing Ein Festerberg, ist also got a mighty fortress that I got Martin Luther's great hymn of the faith based on Psalm 46, the battle hymn of the Reformation. And it was 31 October, and the whole village was celebrating Reformation Day, and the children had been doing posters and charts and drawing hand drawings of Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and William Tyndale, and they had the five solas of the Reformation, these five great battle cries. Sola gracia, salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, salvation is received by faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone is the head of the church. Sola scriptura, scripture alone is ultimate authority. And soli dio gloria, everything should be done to the glory of God alone. And when we heard that Ovumbundu tribesmen in Kawandakabunga province in Angola were celebrating Reformation Day, we were not just encouraged and inspired, we felt rebuked. Because up till 1994, we were not observing Reformation Day. I don't know who was. There might have been some people in Cape Town, but I didn't know of any. And since 1994, since 1995, we've been uh, organising and hosting, uh, inspiring and promoting Reformation Day. Certainly a vast improvement over Halloween's superstitious mumbo-jumbo promoting witchcraft. And so uh, we have also launched the Reformation Society and produced books like The Greatest Century of Reformation, which has got 16 biographies on 16 reformers of the 16th century. the greatest century of missions and the old testament survey new testament survey going through summarizing and preaching through every book of the old testament and the new testament survey every book of the new testament because the reformation brought us back to expository preaching line by line verse by verse and so to encourage people to read to every book in the bible not missing out a whole lot of the minor prophets and so on but and some of the smaller books because so often people go back again and again to the same books and most of the bible remains unread there's If we believe in solo scripture, scripture alone is the ultimate authority. We need to read the whole Bible. So that's been one of our big projects. The Power of Prayer Handbook, how do we reform and revive our prayer life? Well, taking Martin Luther's guidelines of how to pray the Psalms and pray the scriptures, we put together the Power of Prayer Handbook. Reforming Our Families, my wife Lenora put together this, Reforming Our Families, how to reform our families. Well, that's the basic building block of Saudi. Biblical Principles for Africa was produced because of a challenge by the Vice President of Zambia, a good friend of ours, uh, General Godfrey Meander, who had also been in Lasaka Central Prison with me, and uh, he said to me, could I not produce a small book that summarized all of these? I brought him a large <laughs> collection, a shelf full of great books on biblical economics and crime and punishment and biblical principles, government, all sorts of things, education. And he said, I love books, I love reading, but the demands of half has given me little time for reading. Don't you have a small book that summarizes all these? So I produced this 100-page Biblical Principles for Africa, which has since gone through many editions, been expanded, uh, a of French, uh, translated of cons and uh, one of our bestsellers. Uh, we've had governments buying up hundreds of copies to give to parliamentarians, Malawi and Zambia. So Biblical Principles of Africa is very useful, practical discipleship, discipleship training manual. Um, victorious Christians have changed the world, a whole lot of good audio visuals. So we've produced some great materials, but I think the best one to start with is the Great century Reformation. There's nothing like examples of excellence to learn. And so if somebody wants to go on to the reformationsa.org website, you'll see a lot of inspiring articles and links to audio and video lectures. Every Thursday night for the last 17 years, the Reformation Society has been meeting and either look at characters or events or doctrines and contemporary issues and seeking to apply biblical principles to all areas of life, to work for Reformation today and to pray for revival. So uh, if you are also burdened that our church today needs a back to the Bible Reformation, well, get on to the mailing list of Reformation Society. You can email mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za or ZA. And uh ask to be put in a Reformation site email list. If you're in Cape Town, I ask to be put in the Cape Town mailing list so that you can know when we have what events coming up um, in Cape Town that you might be able to take part in. And, of course, we're heading to Reformation Day, 31 October. Uh, this coming Sunday is Reformation Sunday. Uh, if anyone's in Cape Town, we're having a Reformation variety concert and a home education fair also on this coming Saturday. So there's a lot of things on the go. And those who can join us in Franschhoek on Monday, Reformation Day, the 31st of October, we'll be having also guided tour of the Huguenot Monument and Museum and then a Reformation celebration service at 12 noon at the Huguenot Monument, which we have done for many years. And uh, so there's some great resources. There's some good, great books, both historical and doctrinal. But uh, I think it's so worthwhile. If you want to work for Reformation, one of the best things you can do is start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. Work your way through the different books of the Bible, which our Old Testament and New Testament server would help. And um, or get a midweek service where you'll be going through some of the character studies of the Reformation uh, using something like the Grace Center Reformation as a help. And we can provide you with a PowerPoint to help you in teaching some of these examples of excellence through history.
0: Dr. Hammond, thank you for enlightening us about the Reformation and for your efforts to revive and perpetuate the fruits of the Reformation. Um, in closing, I'd like to read John chapter 8, verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thank you very much for joining us for From the front line. God bless and good night.